Welcome back to Meet the Investigators from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. For those who are new to this series, we spend each month getting to know one reporter who works with ICIJ. Their greatest hits, their most challenging stories, their best advice. But this month, we're switching things up. We'll be discussing ICIJ's latest investigation, The Erickson List, with our reporter Maggie Michel. Hi, I'm Maggie Michel, and I'm based in Cairo. Our data journalist, Delphine Reuter. Hi, I'm Delphine Reuter, and I'm based in Spain. And our partner, Aymer Musewi, a reporter with the German broadcaster NDR. Hi, how are you? Here's Amir Musawi. And finally, I'm Nicole Sadik. I'm ICIJ's new editorial fellow, and I'll be your host today. Not only is this my first time in the host's chair, but it's also my first time working on an ICIJ investigation. And let me tell you, there's a lot to cover. So let's get into it. If you grew up in the age of smartphones, like I did, you might be less familiar with the Swedish telecom company Ericsson. Ericsson was a household name in the early days of mobile phones, but today it focuses on supplying telecom infrastructure, like cell towers, to phone companies and governments around the world. You've probably heard of Nokia and Huawei, while Ericsson is like the third member of that trio. So Maggie, what's the Ericsson List investigation about? The investigation is mainly about the company misconduct in a country like Iraq throughout uh, a decade. Ericsson appeared to have paid uh, militant groups like ISIS in order to secure routes to uh, transport its uh, equipment across the country and also put its uh, subcontractors' lives at risk by forcing them to operate in cities under control of ISIS. We're talking about events that happened between 2011 and 2019. That encompasses the rise of ISIS and various attacks that the terrorist group took credit for. Islamic State fighters begin a major offensive against the Iraqi government. In a matter of days... Maggie, take us back to the beginning when this story first landed on your lap. The first time I heard about it from ICRJ managing editor, he called me and said, we received these documents from a whistleblower and these are centering around Iraq and the company operation in Iraq. For me as an Egyptian journalist in Cairo, I'm very interested in anything related to Iraq and the region and the countries around me. But I started in November until now and that was the the period of time we were digging into these documents and uh, making calls and trying to verify and do additional reporting about the findings in the internal report. Maggie, along with ICIJ chief reporter Sidney Friedberg, and over a hundred more reporting partners, spent weeks verifying a series of documents leaked to ICIJ, the largest of which is a confidential Ericsson compliance report detailing the company's own corrupt practices in Iraq. It summarizes the accounts of 28 witnesses and millions of emails. It also details egregious instances of fraud and bribery and names the employees who let it happen. Delphine, you were our data whiz on this project. It's probably fair to say you know these documents like the back of your hand. What did your role entail in this investigation? Personally, I worked on the payments. Like I tried to understand if we talk about how corruption happens, um, a lot of it is going through the payments that people make to companies um, or people 
to um, to get a specific service in return. You know, if it's in the form of bribery, fraud, whatever. What's an example of the improper payments you found? One of the main findings of this investigation was that Ericsson, in its own words, in its own compliance documents, actually uh, recognized that it might have paid ISIS, a terrorist organization, uh, simply because they were trying to continue doing business at a time when ISIS was controlling specific checkpoints in Iraq. As ISIS and the Iraqi government battled for territory, truck drivers transporting equipment for Ericsson were faced with two options, either drive through government checkpoints and face lengthy delays, or pay ISIS militants to use a faster route called the Speedway. So there were strong suspicions in that document that actually by paying subcontractors that were proposing to use that separate route that went through those uh, through those areas, uh, Ericsson actually financed or potentially financed uh, terrorist organizations because they had to go through those checkpoints. Um, so it's it's a typical payment or series of payments that was that were made over um, a period of time. We we understood very quickly that it was very important for the reporters to take the time they needed to corroborate a lot of the information that there was going to be a lot of work involved in actually talking to people, finding witnesses, and trying to really come up with a picture of what had happened because the report was not in itself uh, sufficient to explain everything. Raimir, you were one of a handful of reporters who was actually able to travel to Iraq to corroborate the report. What was it like being on the ground in your native country? It was not the first time for me to work in my native country in Iraq. Um, But with this kind of investigation report, it was something special. It was not easy to find narratives and uh, evidence about about reporting and about finding people to talk with uh, with us. Um, people are not so openly to talk about corruption in Iraq. Everyone know about corruption. No one wants to talk uh, openly about it. So, Raimon and Maggie, as two of the lead reporters on this project, how did you get people to talk to you? Our hardest person. To, to reach out was the, the main character in one of the main cases in, mentioned in the documents uh, where one of the subcontractors were kidnapped by ISIS uh, after he was uh, told by Ericsson to deliver a message or a letter uh, to the uh, militants to seek permission to work in Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq. The thing is, his name came in the document and it's only one name. And it's like a mysterious thing, like, what is Affan? I remember Sydney, my colleague, when the first time we started to talk about him, was like, who's Affan? Not only did Maggie and Sydney answer that question, but they actually found Affan after doing some basic Google searches and connecting with his friends and family. And then finally, after we got his contact number, he blocked us. That was really frustrating. She and our colleagues tried to talk with him, but he was closed. He don't want to talk. And um, and I thought about, okay, he's a guy, he don't want to talk because he has bad feeling about that. But what would happen if we come from the point that 
he think that he's a a victim. So eventually Afen agreed to speak with both of you, and the story he told was really powerful. He talked about being handcuffed by militants, having a bag put over his head, having guns pointed at him. I was struck by how calm he was when he told that story. Did that surprise you? We were also surprised how cold is he and how calm and explaining the whole the details. Even my cameraman told him when we finished, uh, when he told him, hey, come on, you are really very cold when you're talking. What's going on? I can understand why he's not showing emotions. Uh, but clearly, from everything he said, uh, Afan is still like traumatized. He can't go back to his city. He almost left his family. He can't return to his family. Um, as we wrote in the story about him, that um, he lost his job, he doesn't have a stable income, uh, he even didn't get married, so married. So it, it changed his life. ICIJ and partners decided to withhold the source's full name because he still fears for his life. This speaks to the safety concerns that still exist in Iraq today. What were the other challenges of reporting a story based in Iraq? It was navigating this very patchy. Um, documents, knowing that the information it contains is explosive, and at the same time uh, managing the frustration that you have just because a lot of it cannot be um, fully understood or fully corroborated because there's so many risks involved with the people who are mentioned in this report or who were connected to the people mentioned in this report. I did many interviews and I couldn't use any names. So there remained anonymous people and we couldn't use the, the interviews because it's security threat to people to speak about um, powerful figures who are running these uh, companies. They're not only businessmen, they're connected to militias, they're connected to um, militant groups, uh, different factions. And then there's more. This wasn't the first time Erickson's business practices came under scrutiny. In 2019, the U.S. Department of Justice fined Erickson more than $1 billion for violating its anti-corruption law in five countries. To our surprise, Iraq was not one of the countries mentioned in that settlement. Erickson kept the information about its shadowy deals in Iraq secret until a few weeks ago when ICIJ started asking questions. Maggie, this was quite the saga. What happened after ICIJ posed questions to Ericsson? ICIJ sent uh, detailed questions to Ericsson asking to give comments before publication. But instead of uh, responding to ICIJ, Ericsson made the public statements uh, admitting and acknowledging that they actually uh, uh, did an investigation in Iraq that involved corruption, bribery, and uh, possible payments to um, uh, militant groups uh, while uh, transporting equipment across the country. Um, and then the CEO uh, made several interviews with uh, different media organizations. None of them have the documents. Yeah, that was like my first time ever to see a response from uh, like you're doing an investigation and you're, you're giving the every player, every party, every person mentioned in the investigation the right to respond, but instead of talking to you and responding to you, they go public and, that, and just leak and leak the leak. 
You know, to an outsider, this is a story about corruption in a part of the world where corruption is quite normalized. So why is this story important? You know things happen, but you might not fully understand how they happen and why it matters. And if you have a specific example uh, that details exactly how things happen and how corruption is enabled by one of the biggest multinationals, uh, you can actually understand better what are the course of action that a company like this could, could do, like what are the solutions to this issue, uh, what kind of impact it has on the life of normal people like Afan and others who were uh, exposed to the consequences of Ericsson continuing to do business in a place like Iraq at the time. And it actually gives you answers to the many questions you might be asking yourself about why should I care about this corruption? There is a human impact and there is um, a role that multinationals, uh, regulators, you know, whoever, US authorities have to play to make sure that this doesn't happen again, or if it does, then there is a proper uh, way to, <laughs> to stop it or to diminish it, its impact in the future. It's been a few days since the project was first published, and we're already seeing a significant impact. Within one day, Ericsson's stock dropped more than 6% in European trading, and Citibank financial analysts said the shares could become, quote, uninvestable. Ericsson also announced that the Department of Justice said the company had breached its 2019 corruption agreement by failing to disclose sufficient information about its Iraqi business. Amir, beyond the corporate response, what has the impact been like on the ground in Iraq? The reaction of the story has been wide um, in Iraq. Um, people talking with me about it, and they understood why they are paying a lot of money for calling or for using the network. Who is earning money from their pockets? And that's why they were very interested in this story. We've touched on a lot, but I don't want to give away the whole story. So is there anything else any of you would like to add? I can add that uh, this is not the end of um, um, this investigation. This investigation could encourage other journalists to look into the performance and business models of uh, multinational com companies around the world, especially in places like Iraq or Libya or Sudan or Egypt and where they have double standards. It's an, this, this investigation, it's an invitation to the rest of the journalists around the world to look into this every single country, how they're doing business and how they're enriching the corrupt. It's not only, the corruption doesn't only come from like inside this country, but also from outsiders, from whatever multinational is doing business. I think that's a great place to end. Maggie, Delphine, Naimir, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you to everyone listening. Visit our website at icaj.org to read the Ericsson list and share this episode on social media using the hashtag MeetTheInvestigators. We'll be back again next month to speak with another ICAJ member. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>